Hello, brother. Wow! Hey, swapping rides was a pretty cool idea, huh, Batman? Interesting transportation, Dedek. There's just one thing the Batwing has that my disc doesn't. And what would that be? Brakes! Static Shock, next Saturday at 8.30, 7.30 Central and Pacific on Kids WB. Blood Syndicate, created by Dwayne McDuffie, Derek T. Dingle, Dennis Cowan, and Michael Davis. Superpowered survivors of the massacre known as the Big Bang, the Blood Syndicate are all that's left of Paris Island's toughest gangs. Paris Island is the poorest, most crime-ridden neighborhood in Dakota. Holed up in an abandoned factory, they battle to protect their territory, the Dead Zone, from enormous forces that may rip them apart. Their names are unknown, but it's Holocaust. Holocaust is a bang baby, much like most of the superpowered beings in Dakota. His main superhuman ability is his pyrokinetic power. Hours. He is shown to be able to project fire from his body, and has even shown the ability to conjure up fire out of thin air, as well as cause things to explode with a thought. He also possesses superhuman strength and durability at an undefined level. Tech 9 The original leader of the Blood Syndicate, joint superpowered gang of Paris Island's surviving gangs Paris Island Bloods, and the Force Syndicate. DMZ DMZ is seemingly an African-American male. He always wears a full face mask and never speaks. He demonstrates superhuman strength, speed, stamina, reflexes and vulnerability, enhanced senses, and flight as well as the ability to generate light. The Dakotaverse Milestone Skybox trading card entry suggests his powers are adaptive in nature, indicating that when his biology was altered he gained the ability to manifest whatever powers were necessary to address any given situation he came across. Brick House She gained her abilities from touching a brick wall when the gas hit at the famous Big Bang. Brick House is invulnerable, has superhuman strength, and is 7 to 10 feet tall. Morph Masquerade was never referred to as Morph in the actual comic stories, and their name was probably changed because of an original mutant character introduced in early episodes of the X-Men cartoon. Masquerade, or simply Mask, can change into any animal. Flashback Sarah Quinones is a bang baby with the powers to travel three seconds back in time. She also has the ability to fly. She is the sister of Fade and a crack addict. Fade. Carlos Quinones is able to turn invisible, to fly, pass through objects, and see a few seconds into the future. Why, son? An easily angered African-American Muslim who is more or less invulnerable. And Third Rail. Third Rail is the only Korean member of the Blood Syndicate. He can apparently absorb all forms of energy, be it kinetic or otherwise, and uses it to physically grow in size and strength. They've carved out a reputation for brutality that cows all but the very powerful and the very foolish. Don't ever cross the Blood Syndicate. You won't survive. Blood Syndicate was the second milestone title released on March 9th, 1983. In America Eats Her Young, a white female Dakota Chronicle reporter in a beret named Rob embeds herself in Paris Island, an escape from New York-style abandoned, isolated urban hellscape. Rob is allowed there via automated subway by third rail, a hulking Asian electricity sponge who would invite the reporter to be his guest. He introduces her to the Blood Syndicate, which is a gang rather than a super team, and by virtue the readers as well. As with hardware, it's a brisk, action-oriented read meant to display character abilities and establish tone. However, 
However, with 10 primary characters at play, their interpersonal dynamics dominate rather than exposition. They're not the get-along gang. The Blood Syndicate is ideologically opposed to drugs, but are funded through seizures and raids while striking opposing gangs' operations. The reporter is killed in the crossfire, but Flashback is able to travel three seconds into the past to rescue her. She later steals some of the drugs. Flashback, I mean, not the reporter. Blood Syndicate leans heavily into 1970s dystopian visions of ultra-violence played for horror. Gore and dysfunction abound. The issue ends with trial by combat for leadership between Tech-9 and Holocaust, who burned down an entire housing project for kicks under the cover of destroying the drugs. Although he was penciling in his loose, balloon people early 90s style, and inker Andrew Pepoy often overwhelmed him, I still saw enough of the 80s Trevor Von Eden to look forward to more of him on Blood Syndicate. Unfortunately, he splits after the first issue, replaced by James Fry III. I've always liked Fry's high contrast, Ditko-influenced style. It doesn't fit the material as well as Trevor Von Eden, but I don't care much for the material, so at least the art takes a win. Fry was also borrowing from Joe Quesada at this time, which is an interesting look. We finally get the origin story on the page, rather than an ancillary text, again borrowing from 1979's The Warriors, all the local gangs were having a meetup, in this case for a competition called The Big Bang. A police raid ends in a massacre for all sides related to a new form of tear gas. Officially, the gangs killed each other and cops got caught in the crossfire. The street knows that everybody present got messed up by some form of experimental mutagen that caused spontaneous body horror manifestations, which killed most of those subjected. The rest got powers. Virgil? This is gonna be fun. Freeze! You are in a restricted area. Drop all weapons and step into the open. Grab your mask. The Blood Syndicate is made up of those surviving gangbangers, rivals united by their freak status and an authoritarian crackdown. But also, everyone hates them and they hate each other, so Holocaust is going to try to kill Tech-9 to take his place as leader. In the lead-up, Lady Reporter got color commentary. Flashback is going to hit that rock she stole. Brickhouse is an amnesiac Latino with a questionable grasp of reality. Puerto Rican Tech-9's power is unlimited ammo mode, with his dog, D-O-double-G, having gained limited sentience and speech. Holocaust is a sadistic, homicidal psychopath with a god complex. He nearly kills Tech-9, save for a Hail Mary, and is forced to cry uncle to end the match. He quits the gang, but will be trouble later. A group of mama's boys in cybernetic exosuits will be the more immediate threat. The system, guys in bulky exosuits, knock out and capture Brickhouse on orders from their mom. She's defended by the Boogeyman, a foul-smelling, weird rat person who can control rats, but he also falters. Meanwhile, Lady Reporter Rob is losing all her objectivity, especially where Tech-9 is concerned. She learns Fade and Flashback are siblings, and it was the cops who blew the bridge from Dakota to Paris Island. Pursuing evidence, Rob learns Alva Industries were the ones arming the cops. DMZ leads the gang against System to rescue Brickhouse, and the System defeated have self-destruct devices activated to prevent spilled guts. Brickhouse recalls being captive at a local hospital before the Big Bang, prompting the Syndicate to target the most likely suspect in attack. In gratitude, Stinky Boogeyman is allowed to join them. This issue features only the second art job ever by Criss Cross, but he shines on his first full issue's work in comics. Scripts by Iron Velez 
Jr. and Dwayne McDuffie continue to be the worst of the line. Try hard cringe. Holy Cross Hospital is Dakota's biggest and best, so long as you have the money to pay for their care. They also have a secret sprawling underground metahuman vivisection lab that would make Ningala envious. Brickhouse escaped from here. The syndicate's raid turns very violent, with heavy resistance and booby trap. Disregard for human life extends to members of system itself that get in the way of secrets kept. That awful mother character dies during a self-destruct sequence that she triggered. Rob is finally dropped off back home, but she puts up no fight when all her film is confiscated and her life threatened to silence her reporting. Boogeyman joins the syndicate. Everybody tells Tech 9 he's a great leader, that he spontaneously melts like Tote in Raiders. Blood Syndicate is surprisingly graphic, both in its level of violence and in its variety of art style. Hard to miss when James Fry gives way to Arvell Jones. Ivan Valles Jr. is top build over Dwayne McDuffie, so he gets the blame for worst writing at Milestone so far. That's why I like Justice League more because, okay, you got more than one woman on the team. Mm -hmm. And then Justice League Unlimited where you had every active female DC hero at the time, including Gypsy and Vixen, yeah. which she's another character, which I think because of that show I got into. I, I like Vixen that. a lot. If you, if you like Vixen, make sure to go back and read the old Justice League Detroit books. And actually, uh, Hunt Around, the abortive first issue of her series, I actually really like. And I think it's a really good origin story, but it was never officially oh, printed. It was in one of the... It was, uh, I want to say 77, 1977. Oh, okay. And the, what it is, you can only find black and white Xeroxes of it because it was never published. It got caught in what they called the DC implosion where they had a particularly mm -hmm. bad winter and DC canceled a whole slate of books they were going to have come out because they were having issues with paper and distribution and stuff. And so it, it's available in black and white. It's usually available in a collection called Cancelled Comics Cavalcade. Okay. Um, and it's by the original creator, Jerry Conway. And it's actually a really good, solid origin story for her. I like it a lot. I and know, it, just to limit it, they didn't go into all that. And then they did a variation on that origin in her early Justice League stories. I think it was around 236 or so when they were first doing the Detroit stuff. But I actually think it was better done in the original version than when they spread it out over a Justice League story. In part because it's all Vixen, whereas she had to share the spotlight with other team members. And there were other subplots that weren't nearly as interesting as Vixen's. But yeah, no, I'm, I'm very fond of Vixen. She had a great run in Suicide Squad as well. And uh, yeah, she's just an awesome heroine. So I'm fond of her. Which I wish I could see. That she's another character. I'm like, you show me bits and pieces of her and things. But mm -hmm. when's she going to have the spotlight too? Just like Wonder Woman. Like with this theoretical Wonder Woman cartoon we're talking about. Mm -hmm. You know, have her team up with Wonder Woman on a case that only that Vixen would be able to help Wonder Woman solve, you know. And mm -hmm. Stuff like that. Because on Justice League, oh, they only fought. They fought each other. Mm -hmm. Like in, um, I forgot the, the name the of Roulette's, uh, yeah. Roulette's, what do you call it? The Death Trap. Metabrawl. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah Metabrawl, which I was geeking out when I was watching that one because I'm like, I can name everybody in here. <laughs> Even the people that Wildcat fought, I'm like, Atomic Skull, mm -hmm. that one guy from, what's the name of that faux group of Marvel villains that DC did? Oh, the extremists? Yes, yeah, the extremists. They fought them, fought a couple of those guys. But I knew who Black Canary was. Mm -hmm. uh, even though I think I read like a archived edition of her stories or her Golden Age stuff. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay. I understand it was like Dinah Lance and I know there was two of them. Yeah, well, what it is that you got the, her mother and then the daughter they retconned into existence as sort of one of those wonderful I mean, kind of deals. After like what, me watching Birds of Prey like I am, like, once again, my curiosity and interest in all these characters, you know, gets peaked back up again because I'm like, I want to read that stuff. Yeah. I've, I've, I never, know, you, I've never been uh, able to get excited for Black Canary. I've tried in the past, but it just never has worked out. But I'm a Huntress fan and uh, Gail Simone's run on Birds of Prey that featured both of the characters, I'm I'm very fond of. That was good material. And Huntress on Just League was great. I love the, 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 her usage, especially Especially date night with the question. Oh, that's my favorite episode. Mm -hmm. Even I like the voice actress who voiced Huntress on there. And I know she had to fight a guy who was basically an amalgamation of Tobias Well and the man that killed, Black, you know, Huntress's um, father, mm -hmm. uh, Mandra 
Gore, Stephen Major Gore, voiced by Glenn Shandex, the guy who was in Demolition Man, is like the, you, you know, have you said guy who's in Beetlejuice? Okay, I know who you're talking about, yeah. Yeah, and, and which he's another one, I'm like, he passed away a long time ago. Hey guys, welcome back to another lightning horrific, little kid atastic, scary Doom Patrol horrific episode of Fan Holes Comics. Do you read them? Hey, what's up, guys? This is Derek, Derek WC. I'm going to be one of your hosts tonight, but I am not alone. I am joined by two, count them, two of my fellow mansion inhabitants, I don't know, on the podcast. Why don't you guys say what's up? Hey, it's Mike and more wine with my workload. The very idea. Hey, this is Justin. We're participating in a Giganticus podcast event. This is JL May 2023. And what the entire podcast community decided to do for JL May 2023, each tackling like maybe an issue or a few issues of this Brave and the Bold series. We're covering issue number eight featuring the Wally West Flash and the Doom Patrol. We can be found over on the fanholespodcast.blogspot.com. We've got all kinds of shows and we can be streamed. We're over on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, and Amazon Music. And we can be found on social media. We're on Tumblr, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and we appreciate all the likes, hearts, shares, and retweets that we receive. Icon, created by Dwayne McDuffie, Derek T. Dingle, Dennis Cowan, and Michael Davis. 1839, an alien starliner explodes. The Jettison Life pod crashes in the middle of a cotton field in the Deep South. The pod reconfigures the genetic structure of its passenger to match whatever life form it first encounters. Miriam, the slave woman who discovers the pod, finds a child inside and names him Augustus. The present, the alien is still with us in the guise of a successful lawyer, Augustus Freeman IV. As Icon, the hero of Dakota, the alien wields his pro prodigiously enhanced strength and near invulnerability to become an example of what one man can achieve, but he has a lot to learn. It's easy to pull yourself up by your bootstraps when you can fly. Icon number one was released on March 23rd, 1993, the third milestone comic, with each launch spaced two weeks apart. It arrives mere weeks ahead of Adventures of Superman number 500, initiating Reign of the Supermen and a key harbinger of the comic's bust, hobbling milestone at the jump. 1839, an adult-seeming, bluish-skinned alien escapes from an exploding spaceship to Earth. A slave woman is the first sentient being to interact with the escape pod. So the alien patterns itself as an African-American infant. 1993. Brother from another planet is now Mr. Respectability Politics. During the Big Bang, a trio of Paris Island Project kids decide to use the heavy police presence at the Big Bang as a distraction to loot a suburban mansion. They picked Augustus's, mistaking him for the butler. Noble, the leader, draws on Augustus and fires when confronted. The bulletproof alien flies at them and tosses them on the other side of his fence, like taking out the trash, which they are to him. Just criminals hurting themselves and their people but he won't involve cops because alien. A fourth perpetrator, Raquel, was mostly just there for the ride, satisfying curiosity and maybe score a typewriter. She wants to be like Toni Morrison, and whoever lives in this mansion has so much more than her. Paris Island is too tiny a world now that she's seen a black man fly, and she can't let it go. Augustus Freeman is a pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps type, but after the Big Bang Massacre, recognize the need for a symbol of hope. Raquel's appeals of racial responsibility echo the sentiments of the alien's late wife, and her ongoing perspective will be necessary. After a few weeks' consideration, 
Federation and some alien fabrication, Icon and Rocket debut. Raquel drops a flying N-bomb when Augustus suggests collaborating with the police in a hostage situation. Sure enough, things get racial as the cops draw down on the super duo. Police action could have been written today. The entirely white, enhanced SWAT team immediately demand the surrender of the two black superheroes just for showing up. When Rocket refuses to comply, the captain tries to backhand her, but Rocket's inertial field protects her. Icon was in the process of allowing himself to be arrested, but with the intended lethal assault upon Rocket and his person, the scene devolves into a free-for-all. With bystanders imperiled by stray bullets, Icon orders Rocket away, then is cuffed and stuffed in a paddy wagon. Though displeased by the response of Shred, S-H-R-E-D, Icon still expects that the special heavy equipment rapid emergency deployment will be able to best handle the hostage situation and looks on from confinement. Inside, disgruntled former employee Kevin Franklin holds Mayor Thomasina Jefferson hostage at Dakota City Hall, pending her confession that she was responsible for the deaths at the Big Bang six months prior since she authorized the gas attack. He has terrorists backing his play. Shred is not up to the challenge, so Icon breaks free and calls a begrudging Rocket back to help him rescue the cops. The heroes then confront Franklin inside, who transforms into a hulking, toad-like creature thanks to his own gas exposure at the Big Bang. Franklin, now calling himself Payback, slashes Icon when confronted. To everyone's surprise, the alien actually bleeds. Icon seems to temporarily pass out, but aside from the indignity of having to retie his cape like a towel around his neck, will heal in a few days. Rocket's field projection proves effective against Payback, who rabbits, so she pursues him into a sewer. A fight ensues, pretty much entirely off-panel, with Rocket easily overcoming. Franklin reverts back to human and explains that he had counseled against using gas. The mayor wanted to show that she was tough on crime, so Franklin played Cassandra at the Big Bang. Icon insists that Payback turn himself in, and we'll see it outing the truth. His accepting the key to the city and giving a big speech about everyone living up to his example casts doubt. For a gritty urban setting, it's weirdly Silver Age. Dude hired mercenaries to kill cops. They're all getting buried under the jail. Also, Icon's cape work is second only to spawn. It goes for miles. Wonder if the ominous Homelander vibe at the PR event was intentional. Hello, and welcome back for another exciting episode of Aquaman and Firestorm, the Fire and Water Podcast, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. It's been a long time, nuclear subs, and we're happy you're here. I'm one of your hosts, the Irredeemable Shag, and along with me is my co-host, Rob Kelly. I'm the Brave, and he's the Bulls. How you doing, buddy? I feel like uh, we're Han and Chewie from The Force Awakens, where we walk into the Millennium Falcon for the first time in many years. It's like, hey, Shag, we're home. And then the guy... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're back with the Fire and Water podcast after several years of the show being in month. Well, we did warn everyone in that episode. We said, look, folks, we love the show, but we're going to, you know, do other stuff. And we'll come back to it when time is right. And the time is right because it is JL May 2023, Rob. I know you love this time of year. And Rob and I were able to identify an actual Aquaman comic that fits. We are covering Brave and the Bold number 32. It is from April 2010, starring Aquaman and the Demon. With the creative team of J. Michael Straczynski and Jesus Says. I got to say, I feel like we kind of got one of the best issues in the bunch. Uh, this is pretty exciting. How did we not cover? this comic already on the 253 previous episodes <laughs> i think because it came out you know not that long before we started the podcast right and yeah. so you had kind of just recently at that point covered it on your uh, website and you even had an interview and everything mm-hmm. so it's kind of like what, what could we do better than that well now it's been you know 13 years oh, Lord. since this came out and so yeah it's we're talking about 
again, it was one of those situations that's very a classic Justice League dynamic is you can't do anything with Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman. You have to do something with the second rung guys. And John Stewart and Hawkgirl both benefited from that because they got to have their relationship. She got to have the whole thing where she's working with the Thanagarians. The Thanagarians are duplicitous. And John Stewart got to do his, well, you know, you had the love triangle with Vixen. And you just got to do oh, all yeah. kinds of stuff with those characters. You know, they did the thing where John Stewart borrowed the arc uh, involving the Manhunters and the destroyed planet. And this time he wasn't responsible for destroying a planet. Uh, yeah, and that's the one that's yeah, that. like, yes, finally. But again, Boy, it's I, one of those deals where it's in question at the time. So you definitely have that dramatic tension. But ultimately, he's exonerated. It's like, thank God. We don't need that story again. I don't, I mean, because I think now with that context, I look at episode a lot differently because I think the first time I watched, I'm like, he did what? <laughs> like, well, yeah, you know, before I even knew what Cosmic Odyssey was. Yeah, like, and, and you know, you read Cosmic Odyssey, and that's so Hal Jordan in blackface. That's not John Stewart. If you read the John Stewart material before that, he is so competent. He's not cocky. He's so smart. I mean, he's like he was on a cartoon, right? Similar, yeah. I mean, he's he's more loose than the cartoon because he doesn't have that military grump grump thing going on there. Yeah. And of course, he was in the uh, mosaic the mosaic <laughs> series. He was way more chill. He was way more of a you know like laid back guy and that. All that military stuff came in with the cartoon and with Jeff Johns. The main thing with him is he's just so damn good. He's he's the best Green Lantern. He's the best member of the Green Lantern Corps. And he's so much more professional than Hal Jordan. He's so much just smarter <laughs> and so much better about working with people. When you read Read Cosmic Odyssey, I do like how Stewart and Marsh Manhunter bounce off each other because I'm a Martian Manhunter fan, but yeah. I hate that story as a John Stewart fan, you know. And he he does not act in character at all. They just they I don't even think they rewrote the dialogue. They, they just and Jim Starlin at the time was trying to you know raise the stakes, but it, I don't. That's the thing. I want to like Jim Starlin's work, but when I see it adapted by other people or whatever, mm-hmm. or, or homage, say like an animation, like what he did with Justice League with that episode in Darkest Night. Mm-hmm. As far as I'm like, okay, I mean, after figuring out what that was, it really made me kind of go like, this is better than what they did. I was like listening to like a, a podcast where they were talking about an episode and talking about what we just talked about with mm-hmm. John Stewart being, okay, did he did he kill these people or did he not? You well, know, did, and the truth is that the core of that story was taken from a Lynn Ween Justice League. I think it was Lynn Ween or maybe it was a Steve Englehart. So the Cosmic Odyssey stuff is more inferred. The real, the the just the story, the plot of the story is a Hal Jordan story from Justice League. So Jim Starlin, the only aspect of that that's him is that they since they've swapped it out to John Stewart. You're thinking about that other story, but that's not really what they're going for besides the the, the trip up. But yeah, okay, yeah I, blame, I blame Howard Jordan for a lot of reasons yeah. why. I don't know. I just didn't like that character because he did too many things that if anybody else had did it, they didn't. You think Batman would never want to talk to this guy again? If anybody else, Wonder Woman certainly wouldn't want to put Howe's. Well, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, you'd think you'd be excommunicated. Mm-hmm. It's why I look at how Jordan like the way I do. I'm like, you killed your own teammates. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you thought you killed Sinestro, for God's sake. You didn't pull any punches. Yes. You went mad. And Jeff Johns, don't get me started on Jeff Johns. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. I just... I just look at his work now and go like, you love your favorites no matter what. Yeah, I just can't get past how DC were retrograde. How, okay, you had a more diverse universe at a time when that diversity is just starting to be a thing that could actually be beneficial to you in multimedia. And mm-hmm. instead you walk it all back and you make all the legacy heroes white guys again. The same old white dudes all over again. And that's probably why I didn't read Justice League even when, um, I think it was like when Brad Meltzer was writing it, mm-hmm. I didn't care for it. I wasn't going to buy the trades. Because I'm thinking this is, somebody here has a boner for 
eight is Super Friends, and number two, the Silver and Bronze Age. Yeah, and the Outsiders especially. What Geoforce was doing there, I can't tell you. I bought every single issue of the Morrison JLA right up through to for 10 years straight because it was 120 issues as I recall before they canceled it. I bought mm-hmm. every single one of those issues. I bought most of the tie-ins, the specials, the prestige format book, the miniseries and stuff. I bought it all because I was all in for that JLA. And then when they stopped it, they started that Melter stuff. I, I haven't bought Justice League regularly since. I, I've barely bought any of those issues. I bought like I bought some of the ones during Blackest Night because they brought back the Detroit era league briefly. And you had Dixon on the Black Lanterns today. Yeah. So I, I, wow. I drop in here and there for a few issues, but I've not read Justice League on a monthly basis since then. Um, I mean, I noticed the one that Scott Snyder's doing now, and they look like they have it like the cartoon of Hot Girl mm-hmm. and John Stewart being there. Scott Snyder done did his thing, and somebody else is doing it now. I don't know. One half of me goes, okay, they're doing a cartoon lineup, and I'm like, yeah, I should I should, I should get on this. And then there's all the other stuff, Perpetua and Lufer being used by Perpetua and the source wall breaking and existence being threatened, and then there's a Legion of Doom, but you, you know what I'm saying? They, they put like, a bunch of characters on that book that I like, and so I was waiting to hear somebody tell me that they're telling the stories with those characters that I would like, and I never got that word. And that's what I haven't gotten either. I've been trying to watch little stuff here and there and listen to people on different podcasts talk about it, and I don't know. I mean, one part of me went like, should I get, because I've already completed my Grant Morrison run already, so I'm like, okay, should I go back and get the 80s and 90s stuff of Justice League? Since I'm kind of liking this whole little, like, I want to read stuff where I'm like, there's the characters of Cena like cartoons, so I want to see them as they were pre-New 52, because the New 52 Justice League, just to, like we were saying about Jeff Johns and him retrograding and bringing back all the old favorites and minimizing the diversity, which they should be up in. I think when Jeff Johns and Jim Leeds did the New 52 thing, I got like at least one or two issues of that. I just didn't care. Mm-hmm. I felt nothing. Today, on May 9th, we have the Justice Trek. Welcome to Justice Trek. My name is Ted Kilvington, and this is an audio and video log that journeys through comic book history as I discuss individual comic book stories of Star Trek, the Justice Society, and the world's greatest superheroes, the Justice League of America. Justice Trek is the only show devoted to the entirety of these great comic book series. From the 1940 debut of the JSA, the launch of the JLA and Star Trek comic books in the 1960s, and right up to comics hot off today's shelves, this show will impact you in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1... This year's story, as I said, is going to be The Brave and the Bold. I chose uh, episode or issue nine. I chose issue nine because it has some of my favorite comic book characters, the Blackhawks, in it. First time I read this particular comic, The Brave and the Bold, number nine, was when it was published at the end of 2007. Now, it has a February 08 cover date, but comics are always dated a couple months in advance, so that means it was actually published in December of 07. This episode has a rather large cast of characters. They're only one of at least seven distinct groups or characters that are appearing in this comic and will be discussed in this episode. If you want to listen, you can go to podbean.com com slash the justice track you have to include the the uh, and of course there's going to be as i said there's 35 issues of that series so after today the ninth episode there will be other chapters for the rest of the month i nominate icon though i am unfamiliar with this species the bio component is clearly not of earth 
All the milestone titles have icons to represent the properties. Icons, icon, is an octogram starburst, indicating his alien origins, with a ring at the center like his cape clasp. Rockets looks like the prince love symbol converted into a pacifier. About that, Icon wanted to set boundaries on Rocket's activities in light of her condition, which is to say pregnant, which is alien senses and later a P-test determined. Raquel, a virgin twice removed, who only enjoyed it once, is in denial. Icon, meanwhile, is making good on his promise to investigate the mayor's involvement in the Big Bang, and the cross-title continuity is maybe the tightest I've ever seen. The reporter from Blood Syndicate clams up, as does the head of Grind, G-R-I-N-D, and seeds from Static are planted. Icon's nosing around attracts the seemingly invulnerable Wise Son to warn him off, and failing that, the Blood Syndicate, Translate Tech 9, are ready to throw down. It really pays to have the same writer contribute to every book, and to read each in release order. Icon beats on Boogeyman, Wise Son, Third Rail, and DMZ. He gets beat on by Brickhouse, Masquerade, and Flashback, who plan to kill him while he's down. Also, DMZ flees when Icon claims he's an alien who may have the means to help him get off this rock. Raquel confronts her baby daddy, Noble, who gets socked by questioning if it's his. Raquel gets confronted by her grandma, who insists she isn't raising any more children like she had to with her granddaughter. Milestone is often thought of as a black comics line, and that's certainly true of its chief architects. That perception in 1993 would necessitate having a gangsta book in the line, but seeing Blood Syndicate in Icon's book underlines what a misfit they were for McDuffie and Bright. The stories about Rocket's willingness and ability to stand up to impossible odds in defense of her new partner, and what he represents. In getting there, the Syndicate is thrown under the bus. They look and sound weird and incredibly off-putting. They're artificial and unloved. The word corny gets used in story, and it fit. For all Milestone's urban affectations, they're still the children of 70s Power Man comics. Icon and DMZ bonding as stranded aliens highlights that. Also, I never realized DMZ had an open shirt down to the navel. Corny, I said. The Onion recently made fun of J.K. Rowling for using real-world atrocities like the Holocaust as window dressing for fantasy tales, and Icon touches on this too. Hits differently, though, as the fantasy is exploring the impact of social justice and gives those affected a voice. I've seen slavery, Jim Crow, apartheid, the Holocaust, two world wars, suffering beyond your comprehension. But I've also seen the truth, that no injustice will long stand, so long as there are good people willing to fight for what's right. The confrontation is all about taking the character's measure and pure rhetoric. The Syndicate never even tells Icon the truth about the Big Bang, the whole point of his visit. It's more a mission statement on mutual respect and charting a path forward for universe building. Raquel goes to the clinic, and despite the Hyde Amendment, a doctor with personal experience helps her with the facts. She's pregnant, and if she wants an abortion, it should happen soon. Meanwhile, Icon stops a purse thief for minimum superhero action requirements. Raquel hits up Augustus Freeman for the $500 needed for the procedure. He tells the story of his wife Estelle's pregnancy, and how they chose to abort over the likelihood the child would be visibly alien, and continuing to carry threatened Estelle's life. Raquel refuses to believe Augustus's tale of being an alien on Earth 150 years ago, and is angry that he doesn't get all pro-life with her. Despite everything aligning against it, Raquel wants to keep the baby, so now what? The eighth issue of Icon was mostly recapped with nuggets of new information. Icon was a rarely needed alien mediator for the 10,000 civilized world strong utopian cooperative. He and a cop dressed like DMZ rescued passengers on his cruise ship when it suffered catastrophic failure. Augustus Freeman I worked with the Underground Railroad and fought for the Union. He became a lawyer and married Estelle during the Harlem Renaissance. They lived in France in the 30s, then Augustus joined the Allies in World War II. He faked his own death after his wife died, then moved to Dakota. Augustus kept passing generational wealth to himself as he pretended to be his own son. With the help of his alien equipment, Icon finally convinces Raquel Irving of the truth. Also, her belt was developed by Curtis Metcalf, who never returned the spare inertia winder. Finally, Noble drops the bomb on Raquel's mom that he's her baby daddy, and Holocaust pays Rocket a visit ahead of the Shadow War. This crossover just seems to have dropped out of nowhere, not unlike Holocaust. Boy, that name sure aged badly.
Exactly. Hardware's arsenal. Hardware's inertia winder. After Hardware steps through his shell forge, his fall down an abandoned elevator shaft is slowed by an inertia winder installed at the bottom of the shaft. Alien in origin, this device stores kinetic energy and releases it later, much the same as a clock spring. Hardware copied his device from a much more versatile, portable unit that gave off an eerie purple glow. As Curtis Metcalf descends to Hardware's underground lab, the inertia winder controls his acceleration. The 30-story drop would otherwise kill him. The Longbox Crusade Podcast, episode 38. I'm your host, Pat, a.k.a. DJ Cristatos. Normally, the Longbox Crusade is a podcast where each episode, a random cover month and year is chosen, and then an issue is selected from one of the Longbox Crusade crew members, Jason, Jared, Delvin, Comic Collection. In each episode, we summarize, review, and reminisce about the issue, ads, and events of that time period. But for this very special episode for JL May 2023, we are covering the brave and the bold issue number 12 from June 2008. Editor is Joey Cavallari. Writer, Mark Wade. Penciler, Jerry Ordway. Anchor, Bob Wycheck. Letterer is Rob Lay. And colorist is Tom Smith. This was reprinted in The Brave and the Bold, The Book of Destiny hardcover from 2008. Part of the JL May 2023 podcast crossover event. Is that the stuff? Yes. Dark matter. No light can pass through it at all. I've tried to refrain from judgment on these books as I progress, but I do feel the need to take a moment to observe that the early issues of Blood Syndicate were objectively bad, deeply, unfortunately 90s, and seemingly written for a perceived audience against the creator's better instincts. I suspect Dwayne McDuffie was overextended and out of his element. Once Ivan Vallis Jr. takes over sole writing duties and gains a steady artist in crisscross, it becomes a proper team book. As the gang falls apart over Tech Nine's death, the book itself finally gets its act together. Allowed time for more organic character beats and humor, with a smoother flow overall, Valles seems to be better solo on the finest issue so far. Crisscross is a perfect fit for this refined human approach. Combined, this goes from the worst milestone book to a true contender. An affluent prospect tills. Family man John Wing rearranges his schedule on the ride into town to prioritize a meeting of the Coalition, the local criminal combine he runs, whose business the Blood Syndicate has been ruining. At St. Anne's School for Young Women, Nina Lam struggles against overt racism, while at night she's plagued by terrors that threaten to destroy her reality. On Paris Island, Tech Nine is buried in the field outside the Blood Syndicate's warehouse, and everyone mourns him in their own way. Money's getting tight, so new leader Wise Son orders another raid, tonight, even after a number of drinks have been shared. Fade and Dog try to warn the Blood Syndicate that something is off, but Wise Son isn't listening, and then an explosion is set off to take them out by coalition orders. In a brutal sequence, Flashback pushes her powers to the limit, torturing herself by restarting time repeatedly until maneuvering the Blood Syndicate into positions that will save them from the explosion. They then proceed to kill every mother in the area for the attempt. John Wing of the Demon Fox Tong is left alive, dishonored by being urinated upon by Wise Son. Driven to extremes to save face, he murders his wife in a ritual to manifest the actual Demon Fox for service. Also in Prospect Hills, but a different Asian family, Nina Lam experiences terrifying visions and is taken from school to hospital. Authorities intervene when ritualistic tattoos are found on her back and arms. She suddenly speaks Mandarin, despite her family 
family only knowing Cantonese. On the subplot front, Masquerade reacts strongly to a homophobic jab, then visits the family they've abandoned. DMZ's solitary longing is questioned. Third Rail and others question Wise Sun's leadership. Wise Sun questions their questioning. A Lady of Water keeps coming short of making contact. Brickhouse is confirmed to be a Latina named Marta with a seizure disorder. Wise Sun's young siblings, Cornelia and Edmund, come calling on Hannibal unexpectedly. Tween Nina Lamb escapes Medina University Hospital. Her father Michael thinks she's inheriting a hereditary role as the Avenger, against his hopes and expectations. Demon Fox seeks to kill John Wing, who invokes an obligation to grant his wish for the destruction of those who humiliated him. Sure, the wife he sacrificed didn't love him and was carrying the chauffeur's baby, but he's all about that blood syndicate. Demon Fox assumes human form. Demon Fox tricks Wise Son into letting her get close with a damsel in distress act, then uses a wand-type object to drain him of life. Stonewall gives her a good smack, and like her appreciation for the act of breathing, Demon Fox is thrilled at the opportunity to throw down. The Demon Fox ripped the blood syndicate to shreds, kills Boogeyman in flashback, but for the three-second rule. Guts Dog, triggers Breakhouse's seizures, outs Fade as gay, doesn't quite out the quote-unquote perverse masquerade. Despite looking cool, DMZ continues to be useless. We learn Third Rail, or Poe, had a dad who lived and died for him. Completely satisfied with his revenge, the Demon Fox snaps the neck of John Wing. Nina Lam reincarnates as Kwai, who beheads her sister the Fox, but she recovers and escapes. Lots of Asian representation in this title. The next issue showed the formation of the Blood Syndicate, with guest art by a young and green J.H. Williams III, looking like a cross between Tim Bradstreet and John K. Snyder. It turns out the founding quartet of the Blood Syndicate were Fade, Flashback, Tech 9 and Dog, sorta. First recruit was Holocaust, who would have gotten someone killed except for the usual flashback. Holocaust then extorted Wise Son's inclusion, despite his plans to quit the life, by threatening his younger siblings. Third Rail was living in a Dakota automated rapid transit tunnel. Templo was staying at a church when he was recruited, and there were sparks with Fade. However, he was troubled by having to kill a man in the Syndicate's first raid, and was soon killed himself by a sniper in an ambush. Blood Syndicate got their name as a combination in tribute to two former gangs they were survived from. Masquerade was working for drug dealers at the first crack house they raided for resources, and was convinced to switch sides. Later, they killed everybody that ambushed them. Hello and welcome to episode 143 of Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries, and welcome to JL May 2023. This time around, we're doing something a little less ambitious, but still as fun. The 2007 version of DC's classic team-up title, The Brave and the Bold. And I'm covering number 10 which features the Challengers of the Unknown, Superman and the Silent Knight, and the original Teen Titans and Aquaman. So check it out. A 
that's the thing with DC, which I want to like their black characters. Just I constantly find myself with one or two favorites, and the rest I got to really look at and figure out who they are. Well, it's usually a 50-year-old white dude coming up with these characters, and so there's a, there's a lack of sincere insight into the characters they're trying to do. I mean, Good like intention. John Henry Irons is different because Louise Simonson. Well, I could tell her and John Bogdanov at least talked to black people. Right. I, I, we, <laughs> we talked about this before. I love the idea of John Henry Irons, and I love the way he was drawn by John Bogdanov, and I loved how Afrocentric those early appearances were. And then I think that they really went off the rails when they gave him his own series, because I think they were watching too many urban movies and trying to make it too, oh no, you know, Natasha's in trouble and the, the gangs are coming for us. And yeah, it, 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 it's great. Very yeah, Just and like, so I mean, like that Black Lightning robot I was talking about. They try to make him too straight. Exactly. But beyond the initial appearances, it's when Christopher Priest is writing him. That's when that's the character that I fall in love with again. I love yeah, the, I feel con- like the the animated version in his initial appearances. For me, that's about it. Mm-hmm. And a little bit what Grant Morrison did with him in JOA. Yes, yes. I, I I will always love. I, I'm wearing this entire building, you know, or whatever the line was. Oh yeah, yeah. The, the Watchtower. Yeah. Which in the animated series, I'm like, they never did that. Well, I got that- a little bit mad a little bit because I'm like, still can do that mm-hmm. well, <laughs> why doesn't he help him build a watchtower or anything you know like why is he integrated a lot of his tech in there during the Christopher Priest run Howard Porter did several of the covers and he did such a great job of rendering the character in the JLA run he looks so cool that I wanted him to do another Steel series and the best the close we got was him kind of being a co-star in Man of Steel after that they never he should still kept his own book actually built upon all that from JLA yeah which would be another character I'm looking at like he could have an animated series if they really wanted to give him one I think when they made that movie, it really halted any progress he's going to make for a long time. Because I, it, bl- I, I blame Shaq. <laughs> and I blame Kenneth Johnson, mm-hmm. the guy who, going back to the Hulk, thought it was too silly, you know? Like, and this is before Iron Man, so I can see why they would, they would balk at the idea. And now with Iron Man came and gone and whatever they really want to jump on the Iron Man train if they wanted to they'd have to really try to do their best not to do Iron Man but in a way I mean that's kind of why I like Steel because he was like Black Iron Man except he had a hammer the the simplest way of explaining what's cool about Steel is he's a combination of the big three Avengers he's got qualities of Captain America Thor and Iron Man all mixed together and if you go by the animated version he's forced by Michael Dorn (laughs) yeah yeah he's like that good hearted good natured easygoing hero type classic hero type like Captain America, and he's a little bit more physical too, more of a, of a, a bit more of a brawler. Where, but he's also got the technological brilliance of Iron Man. But again, he's got the red flowing cape and the hammer. Briefly, he had that teleportation power as well. It was a bit strange. It was. was it was. Michael, I listened to Michael Bailey cover those books, and I could tell that Michael Bailey and the other guy named Jeff on there was like, "Yeah, we don't get it. I don't get it." <laughs> It was just an easy way of getting the armor on him without him having to do Tony Stark stuff. Well, um, you know, Tony Stark pre-MCU, if you want to. <laughs> right. Now, now, like, you could, if you were to do Steel now, you'd have to look at how they do Iron Man order, but find your own way to really make it work. Well, I think, actually, I don't like what they do with Iron Man in the MCU where everything became nanotech. Well, no, that's what I'm pre-nanotech. Yeah, yeah, so he could be almost like the Luddite Iron Man where he actually has to physically take his hand, put it on a helmet, and put it on his head, you know? You yeah, know? That's, that's what I want, though. That's, I mean, Mark yeah. One, Mark Three, you know? Yeah, like he was in the first Iron Man movie at best, where it took it took some doing to get that suit on, exactly, or at least the briefcase armor at best. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's a, it, he has to actually craft that armor. He's he's like a smith, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's why the thing is a kid wants someone Superman animated series because they made him under ex employee of New Four, which I thought well, it's kind of was better than Armor Tech. You know? Yeah, <laughs> like he worked for one of Superman's big bads and regretted it. He's like, well, you know what? Fine, I'll screw you, Lou Four. I'm taking my genius elsewhere. But I know that 
cartoon. That's the thing. Like we're saying about anime, about one, about one, if one woman had her own animated series, I feel like they could have done stuff like that. Like yeah. you know, streamline it to a point where if you do a little look up who they are, you get it. You get the gist. But at the same time, also you 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 can add more interesting things onto them. Like would still okay. I see what they they didn't do. Superman dying in order to have John Henry Irons there, mm-hmm. and they didn't do protoplasmic. Supergirl. No, no great loss there. I always hated that idea. Uh, no, for me, I always find that one was interesting though. Yeah. Which on the show, Supergirl, I was, I'm expecting it to happen, and it never does. Putty Supergirl, John Cryer looks in for hair, yeah. <laughs> you know, conspiring or whatever. You know, one of the things that's nice about a Wonder Woman cartoon, if they ever were to do it, is I think that there's certain expectations with a Superman and Batman cartoon that you have to execute to. You have to portray the Joker in a certain way. You have to portray Luthor in a certain way. And with Wonder Woman, you've got a much more of a free hand. As long as it's good. I think that the majority of the audience will accept it. They won't fight you on it the way they would fight you if you get well, some like, little detail. Batman does, like Batman does a kill here to Joker's not voiced by Mark Hamill or right, Lex exactly. not voiced by Clancy Brown. <laughs> and, and I don't understand, given that we're living in a COVID environment and so little can get produced right now, and they uh, they just announced that they're supposed to do a Gotham series on HBO Max, and I it's like, didn't that. we just end one on Fox and now we got it on HBO Max? I mean, that's kind of why I'm Batmaned out right now. Right. Like, I, I like him, but I don't need any more of him. Right, exactly. So if you're wanting to do stuff you can do from home, animation is a thing you can do from home. People can do that kind of work without exposing themselves. Why aren't we getting an HBO Max Wonder Woman animated series? I mean, right now, that would complement the Harley Quinn show that's on right now. Mm-hmm. If you want to do like, hey, there's a, there's a popular fe- female show out right now, and it's funny, and everybody likes it. And it showcases the DC universe, but in a different way than what you're used to. I mean, they can do it. Meanwhile, in the JLMA podcast crossover, The Brave and the Bold, number 23, cover dated July 2009. This episode is another of our Meanwhile episodes. In these Meanwhile episodes, we break from the usual numbered issues to provide a chance to look at the JLI outside of the ongoing monthly series. This time out, we're doing something a little different and chatting about a Booster Gold appearance in the Brave and the Bold team-up comic. Yeah, we're teaming up Booster Gold and Magog. Now, my name is The Irredeemable Shag, and I'm your host, but I'm not doing this alone. Thankfully, I'll be joined by a buddy to help me cover the issue. This guest is also an incredibly nice guy, and nature gifted him with a fantastic podcasting voice, which makes we hate him all that much more. Folks, please help me welcome back to the show, Mr. John Coos. And Mike's first exposure to JLI was the moving day episode of number eight. But coincidentally, that was my first exposure to Booster Gold as well. And he's oh, on wow. the cover. Yeah. The cover. Yeah. <laughs> and I was an instant fan after Power Girl. Booster's probably my favorite second or third tier character. And we are going to cover The Brave and the Bold, number 23, by Dan Jurgens and Norm Rapmund. Candide, huh? She's hot. What'd you say? I mean, she sells lots of records. More cash for us to grab, you know. Wouldn't want to think you was blowing me off for some singer. Hey, don't talk, dumb. You're my own girl. You think I'd blow that? Wouldn't want to be here if you did. I'm let you know. Hardware's arsenal. Quick pick. Hardware shell alloy in liquid form can be poured into a lock, then polarized into a perfect key in seconds. No standard lock is safe from this device. Hardware created by Dwayne McDuffie, Derek T. Dingle, Dennis Cowan, and Michael Davis. Curtis Metcalf is the most brilliant inventor alive. His boss, Edwin Alva, is the biggest criminal alive. As Hardware, the high-tech hero, Kurt wages all-out war against the man he may never defeat. After a hard day's work, a step through Hardware's shell forge seals Kurt inside a protective bodysuit. Many times 
times tougher than Kevlar. From deep within the bowels of the Mason Building, headquarters of Alva Technologies, Hardware deploys his secret nighttime arsenal of plasma cannons, inertia winders, and liquid metal alloys in a single-minded quest for vengeance. In an excellent done-in-one by guest creators Brian McDonald and Arvell Jones, with Dennis Cowan inks for consistency, Alva insists that Kurt Metcalf beat himself, that is, devise a means to take down hardware. The rest of the story is no prizing responses to that prospect. The story introduces model-pretty cybernetics expert Tiffany Evans as a collaborator on the project. Though a bit of a cardboard feminist, she's very much a match for Metcalf in a variety of senses. She'll become the female version of hardware, dubbed Technique. What's great about the story is that it's all about turning the screws on Metcalf, as he's trying to undermine two geniuses who are on to his every move. The problem is that the cat and mouse game is so much more fun and imaginative than the actual showdown. Depending on your perspective, the story ends either leaving McDuffie holding the bag on a resolution or the gift of a formidable opponent and a bunch of story springboards going forward. Good on McDonald, a screenwriter responsible for a lot of fun 80s zombie flicks. Hardware was making progress with deconstructing Alva's criminal empire and with getting Baraki Young's approval. However, leveling up meant taking on Don Cornelius, Hardy Har, the Demon Fox Tong, and Holocaust, significantly raising the stakes and risks. Don Jock Cornelius had need for super-powered muscle, with Holocaust angling for territory, and Harm was his pit. Except Harm has a secret, made more difficult to keep when he chooses not to kill a sniper that had targeted the Don. Harm is a tall, muscular Caucasian male whose ensemble is your basic post-apocalyptic warrior from a low-budget Italian production, but with a white cape. He works as an enforcer for Milton St. Cloud's criminal organization. With hardware also putting the squeeze on the Don, a confrontation was inevitable. However, Lady Teleporter Transit shows up, looking for them both, as a Shadow War is about to sweep through all the Milestone books. Art by Rich Buckler and Prentice Rollins, successfully aping Cowan. There's an Indian dude who talks to himself about being able to see the future, but not change it. Somebody else is clearly trying, though, as Harm has disintegrated and Hardware may be next. I guess put a pin in this guy until we learn more in future Shadow War chapters. Hardware evades as best he can, but on contact with Transit's hands, is sent free-falling into another frigid dimension. Transit is a young, black, female bang baby in a beret who can teleport and works with the star chamber. Using his plasma whip, Hardware is able to anchor himself back in Dakota and reel himself in, knocking out Transit besides. A normal man would have been knocked out for hours, but Harm is wide awake, if chilly, when he arrives at the other side of the portal. He's greeted by the star chamber, who know all about Mr. Pugliesi. They're ex-members of a secret organization claiming heroism, but Holocaust a member. Meanwhile, Hardware meets Iron Butterfly, a Palestinian who can control metal and works for the secret organization called the Shadow Cabinet. They know all about Mr. Metcalf and his hidden base. They want his help to stop the Star Chamber from getting some super weapon. After evading Shred, Hardware goes to Baraki Young to confess his love and smooch, just in case he dies in the Shadow War. Despite extra length and cool mirroring, off to a less than impressive start. Very written on paper. And Icon. You know, I was the one who convinced the Icon to become a hero in the first place. I should be outside celebrating with him, not hidden away in here. Holocaust talked Rocket into joining the Star Chamber. Icon questioned the mayor, who knows more about the Big Bang than she's letting on, before getting attacked by Onslaught, a major upgrade on systematic power armor. Also, Noble offered Raquel's mom $200 to help pay for an abortion. After multiple failed attempts over the years, the Shadow Cabinet finally recruits Icon, via strong woman Donner and speedster Blitzen. More like Shadow Snore so far, just extra pages of pontificating and recruitment drives. 
The fifth milestone series arrived on November 23rd, 1993, appropriate for such a turkey. Zombie number zero launched as part of the Shadow War crossover, but the proper series won't start for half a year, with a different artist, as Dennis Cowan did this advanced preview from John Rosam's script. As with each Shadow War chapter so far, at Shadowspire, Dharma contemplates visions of the future. Then members of the clashing factions Shadow Cabinet and Star Chamber drag milestone heroes into their drama in pursuit of the bio-weaponized MacGuffin called Quantum Juice. The difference this time is that we don't know anybody in this story. The titular lead is literally some random dude in a bar. David Kim has nanites that heal him from most injuries and prevent him from dying. He's enlisted by Twilight. Twilight is a living dimensional portal able to release extra dimensional creatures from his body or send people to another dimension. He looks like a human shaped cloudy skyline wearing a bowler hat. And Rainsaw. Rainsaw is a metal entity villain and a member of the Star Chamber. It looks like a human shaped whirlwind of scrap metal, but like stocky or even fat where Twilight looks like it works out. This makes no sense. Whatever. Both just abstract visuals. They really want to both sides the issue, so the good guy accidentally severs Zombie's arm, he gets better, and unleashes a bunch of horrifying killers from his portal, who proceed to murder bystanders, thus the air quotes. Zombie chooses to go with Rainsaw for reasons. The thirst for Zombie to be Milestone's answer to Vertigo is so deep, it's like sucking on desiccant from out of a box of Spanish fly. It reads like those awful third-tier Alan Moore Acolytes, Burger's assistants hired to do the spin-offs when the name apostles turn their noses up. Uh-oh. Let me guess. The wedding's this morning and you two waited till the last minute to pick out the ring. Brickhouse, run! Leave us alone! Help Blood Syndicate blessedly breaks the Shadow War template and goes its own odd little way. The Chinese demigoddess Kwai heals Wise Sun physically, and maybe even a bit in the misogyny department. He becomes intent on recruiting her, not taking repeated no's for an answer. Brickhouse weeps for the shriveled third rail, but Dog, himself bleeding out, encourages her to smash him for kinetic energy resuscitation. Later, Rail tries to smash her right back. Dog is also tended to by Kwai, but still ailing. Flashback in the kids, Wise Sons, rather than the siblings they pose as, catch Boogeyman in his human, white boy form. Fade discovers Masquerade in their default, biologically female form. Kwai knows the still-closeted Fade from her past, which is his future. Lots of new info to process. The Demon Fox kidnaps John Wing's orphan daughter and blows up his abandoned mansion. Kwai will continue to pursue her sibling as he, she, they plot in this time period. DMZ is talked back onto the ledge, where he returns to signaling parts or persons unknown. So much more is happening in this one issue than the Shadow War event that referencing it is deferred to page 18. The very clearly evil Star Chamber and the more ambiguous Shadow Cabinet send a bunch more new characters and Rainsaw to try to strong arm the Syndicate into joining. Lots of well-censored curse words, though F-G bombs were released unmolested, and fighting ensues. The Water Lady that still hasn't revealed herself washes away the interlopers, leaving only the anti-Syndicate cop Oro for questioning by the gangsters. The Syndicate rough up the captured Oro, threatening worse before he escapes, but seemingly just to send the cabinet a message. Virgil, what happened? You are gonna trip. Meet me in the auto junkyard ASAP. Bye. Virgil. Yo, Virgil. I'm worrying about his button. He's rushing me off the phone and... Whoa! Tell me that's not cool. How the heck did you... There was an explosion last night, and there was this gas. It changed me, Richie. Check it out. Don't 
level wall. Yeah, no more asking my pops to borrow his car, dude. Uh, you don't even drive yet, V. Whatever. Oh, and I rather like this. Talk about your static cling. V-Man, you could so be a superhero. I could, couldn't I? Whoa. The static comic wisely stays in its own lane for the Shadow War. Milestone Comics' first major crossover event taking place in all four of their launch titles. A war breaks out between two influential but clandestine super teams, the Shadow Cabinet and Star Chamber. Each claim that only they can save the world from an upcoming Quantum Juice incident, and that the opposing team is set on causing a global tragedy. This event marked the first full appearance and debut zero issues of Zombie and the Shadow Cabinet. It's a teen action comedy, with Virgil force to help Frida with a house party and static securing it against armed hoods. After battling the botanist and a compulsion for plant puns, 50-50 outcome, Static is groomed by plus a flirty frosty-haired East Indian girl with flight and force field abilities and Funnel, spelled F-U-N-Y-L, a scrawny, nerdy white boy who teleports. He initially joins the chamber, but only the flirtatious plus helps with the party crashers. It probably didn't help that Funnel had bugged the star badge the star chamber had given Static. Oh, and Daisy catches Virgil with plus. Oops. Virgil, what are you doing that's so dang important that you can't help me with the housework? Sleeping? Hey! Static Shock, today at 11, 10 Central and Pacific on Kids WB. Just call me Static Cling. Shadow Cabinet Number Zero was the sixth milestone title, released on December 7th, 1993, and continuing the odd pattern started with Zombie, of having the artist from one of their first four books, Static's John Paul Leon, draw 48 pages of it and a new title for Shadow War in the same month. Shadow War is perhaps the most perfect example of how not to do a crossover. Tons of pages devoted to treading water, failing to explain the excess of new characters or the stakes, heroes arbitrarily acting in error for inorganic conflict, rushing through key plot points. The background is essential. Dr. Nathan Flack created dequantified plasma, or quantum juice, the unstable molecules and mutagen of Milestone. Basically this stuff alters reality and can bestow superpowers. It's what was in the tear gas that created the Bang Babies. SYSTEM, all caps, is Milestone's evil techno-illuminati, and they compromised Dr. Flack in an unclear way to stockpile quantum juice for unknown ends. The only person readers know has used the stuff is Flack and Dharma, leader of the Shadow Cabinet. Alva Industries created the tear gas. It was Dharma who arranged for Dakota to get the tear gas, creating the Bang Babies to save Earth from a great threat, sacrificing hundreds to save millions. We are told this on page two. No one else seems to know, and it never plays into the conflict. Could have been a decent ending punch. Flack is the first Bang Baby, with the power to make himself imperceptible. And I think he's the leader of the Star Chamber, or they're related, or they're unrelated. Not entirely clear. They want the Quantum Juice to create a bomb to extort money, and there's such cackling villains about it. Rocket, Zombie, and Harm look like complete morons for battling known heroes, well, Icon anyway, and finally switch sides. Also, each group breaks up into Gardner Fox Justice League team-ups to battle each other over MacGuffin, 
Legends, wasting space that could have developed the titular team. Because of the exclusion of the Blood Syndicate, readers only really know three or four out of the dozens of characters with dumb names, rolling for vague reasons, as rendered by an overtaxed artist who becomes reliant on silhouettes and solid blacks to a crippling degree. In the end, a series of horizontal lines and a smidge of color meant to represent hardware, using unexplained technology never previously referenced, catches up with and disarms the Quantum Juice Bomb, detonated for no clear reason by Flack or Dr. Nemo, as he now prefers for reasons. Milestone has rightly been lauded for offering representation and diverse perspectives well ahead of the mainstream, but that didn't mean they did 90s as hard as they could in EXTREME fashion. Hello, and welcome back to Resurrections and Adam Warlock and Thanos Podcast. I'm your host, Al Sedano. And this episode, we're doing something a little different. And since I'm doing something a little different, well, who else to help me run down the road of random tangents away from the regular focus of the podcast than Tim Price? Hey, Al, yes. I think when it comes to doing something different, that's right up my alley. So this JLMA, the crossover, is focusing on the Brave and the Bold series. Not the original, because that would take way too long. Definitely couldn't do that in a month. But volume three and we are covering issue 13, which features Batman and the Golden Age Flash. What a great team up. Written by Mark Wade, pencils Jerry Ordway, inkers Scott Koblish and Bob McLeod, colorist Rob Schwager, letterer Rob Lay, editor Stephanie Busima and Joey Cavallari. Rocket apologized to Icon, but he's not mad at her, only Holocaust. Her mama, on the other hand, is extremely unhappy with Raquel, and it took a cameo to make me realize that she runs the greasy spoon Virgil Hawkins was fired from, and is his sister's current employer. After foiling a bank robbery, Icon confronts Holocaust and beat on him, but nothing much comes of it. Holocaust stole a little quantum juice for his personal use, effect to be seen. The first year of Icon ended with a pair of fill-in issues. Kurt Busiek and Ron Wilson offer a child enamored with Icon trying to identify the building warehousing a cache of heavy arms, but no one will listen. This one didn't age well and felt like a throwback to the Bronze Age. Another fill-in for Icon by only time writer Jackie Ching and Statics Wilford on art. Rocket defends a woman's right to access to safe and legal reproductive care, plus her friend's baby daddy's a psycho-terrorist tied to Society of the Cross. Good intentions with the story, hideous execution. McDuffie returns for an issue devoted to a scathing, thinly-veiled parody of Luke Cage called Buck Wild. Feels like certain circles must have been compared Milestone unfavorably to past examples of representation, but it doesn't help that quality had plummeted since the Shadow War. Next issue, a poorly motivated mass murderer manages to steal Rocket's belt and go on a rampage. Badly undercooked by artist turned writer MD Bright, McDuffie obviously spread too thin with three new launches and a crossover coming. Too much product for talent and editorial pulls. Hello, and welcome to the Coffee and Comic Podcast. This is the place where the comics are never too old, and the coffee is never too cold. I am your host, the caffeinated Clinton Robinson. We are covering The Brave and the Bold. 14 is definitely an undertaking, and I cannot do it alone. That is why I have brought in the magnificent Billy Delicious. Well, thanks for having me, man. Our team-up is Green Arrow and Dead Man. Mm-hmm. Two really good characters, man. I really... Uh... I really like these characters. Issue 14 was titled The Ghost Killers of Nanda Parbat. Writer was Mark Wade. Art by Scott Collins. Colors by Rob 
Schwagger, and Letters by Rob Lee. Mm-hmm. I highly encourage all of you to check out hashtag JLMay2023 and follow all the episodes that cover this wonderful Brave and the Bold series. Hardware's arsenal. Neural net. Fired from a swiveling forearm mounted cannon. Electrical field that painfully disrupts the nervous system of anyone it touches. Effectively paralyzing the victim for as long as the field coheres. About four minutes. But the average person will need an additional 20 minutes or so to fully recover. Rick Buckler does another Cowan impersonation. As six pages are spent recapping Shadow War. Hardware determines harm as actually an undercover cop. It helps him secure dominion over Don Cornelius's Dakota operations while the man is in hiding in Italy. After surviving an assassination attempt and capturing the hit man. Curtis Metcalf decides to take a vacation with Baraki Young, except she has plans to speak at a seminar. In Jamaica, thanks to his hardware connections, Curtis joins last minute, and she's mostly into it. Baraki had been propositioned by her old college professor, Jonathan Stroman, set to release the most important book on race relations ever, Tribes. To prevent its publication, Reprise shoots him and destroys all copies, except Baraki. Curtis rescues her, but what now? Curtis and Baraki spend most of an issue, inexplicably drawn by icons MD Bright, trying to escape from Reprise. Failing that, they realize it was John Johnson Strowman, who hired the assassin to make himself a martyr, and reprise the sides he wants tribes published after all. Umberto Ramos made his comics debut on Hardware number 15, mostly a recap of the series to date. Edwin Alva has discovered Kurt Metcalf is hardware, and offers him all he ever wanted. Heir to Alva Technologies, joining him in the fight against worse evils within System, Curtis accepts. Alva's hired guns have issues working with hardware, and System moves to take everyone out. But Metcalf has devoted the full resources of the company to making his dream armor. He easily routes the offensive, but now he's having to lie to Icon about his new position. Curtis may be turning down Tiffany Technique Evans' advances, but also hasn't called Baraki since Jamaica, and there are outside eyes concerned that hardware has been compromised. Also, more damned crossover set up. These things are really disrupting the flow. the merry merry month of may so that means mwc stands for married with crossovers join us as we cover 2008's the brave and the bold number 15 part of jl may welcome to mwc podcasts we are the shaper hameses and this is the podcast where my wife, Maggie. That's me. And her husband, John. That's you. Talk about various pop cultural and nerdy stuff that we're into at any given time. And sometimes we do cartoons. Sometimes we do movies or books. And sometimes some guy from Australia named Paul Hicks asks us if we want to do a crossover in May, which involves reading a comic book that's part of a series we've never read. And one of us. That's me. Says sure before the other one. That's you. Can say Anything, and then one of us... That's me again. ...forgets all about it until it's actually May and too late to weasel out of it. In my defense, it was in, like, November when he told us about it. It was never going to be May in November. Sound logic? Anyway, we're talking about uh, JL May and... So we're having fun goofing around, but mm. we are thrilled that Paul asked us to be part of the event again. And this year, we're back in the DC Universe with 2008's Brave and the Bold comic series. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Brave and the Bob. And 
got something a little different cooking in the kitchen today here. I was selected to take a couple of different issues to look at and interesting one for uh, tonight's discussion, but I in no way possible could do this alone, but it is with uh, my buddy from Coffee and Comics, Clinton. Much like Brother Power, I'm destined to be reborn somewhere along the way. So this is the Brave and the Bold 29. It's got a cover by Jesus Saez. do like his work quite a bit. I really like how Brother Power is doing the whole post-apocalyptic scream and everything, but Batman just kind of feels like he's tacked on. I hate to say this, if I've ever worked at DC or whatever, one of these places that I've you know, we put together these ideas. I don't know if they listen to me. Yeah, right, right. They never do because there's always. Well, I mean, right now AT and T's calling all the shots at DC, and they're, I think yeah. they're making a lot of really bad decisions based on what AT and T are telling them they have to do. And I, I, it's going to blow up in their face, you know. Which to me, I feel like this right now is a good time because you got a movie covered out. If you want a Tim Burton Batman '89 Wonder Woman to keep that momentum, you know, like how Batman '89, like Batman animated series, spawned from that mm-hmm. basically. And I know Superman had no movie in the night. But still, there was the momentum, and you look at if the movie's right, and everybody loves the movie. You damn well better be making a cartoon, like like the Birds of Prey. Sure, it had Harlequin should not have had anything to do with. Should have just had her own movie with no Birds of Prey. But it did spawn this cartoon that came out. But the hype and anticipation really did pay off for the animated show, which I think has like two seasons already going on the I, third. I, I believe it's a yeah. I don't know if the second season is ongoing or if it's finished or what. Sure. They used to be more concerned about synergy than they are now, which is a strange thing. You would think that they. Be even better at synergy as opposed to have gotten so much worse at it. But I yeah. guess I, you look at stuff like the Green Lantern animated series that never really caught on, and I think they dumped a lot of money into that, and it, it didn't really go anywhere. Because they were thinking they were going to Batman 89 it with Green Lantern and be like, we're going to have two free Green Lantern movies, and we're going to have this long-running show Bruce Tim was on it. Mm-hmm. So once again, I see if he's on there, it's got to mean something, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they're doing it in a way where, okay, this is different, you know, because Green Lantern never had his own show, right? Which I look at him and go like, I know they got to do how Jordan and all of that stuff. And they did like three or four animated movies just about Green Lantern. I think after that movie, I think one before the movie and one after the movie, I think I had both of them. And I think at the time I watched it because I'm like, okay, fine. I might not see the movie, but I'll watch the animated movie. And I still didn't come away liking Kyle Jordan anymore or less. Even though in one of them was voiced by a guy from Law & Order played Stabler. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. I think Hal Jordan might be a classic example of, of trying to fetch a hero. They really seemed like they tried to make Hal Jordan happen and I don't think he happened. I didn't see... Hal Jordan making waves in the broader culture based on those animated films and stuff. I think the comic books had their following, but it doesn't feel like any of that ancillary material caught him on with the public, and certainly the movie didn't do much of anything for him. And I still had memories in my mind of Emerald Twilight, him as Parallax, him in Zero Hour, and then even Final Night, and then him as the Spectre. And after that, I I just look at him and go, you're an yeah, well, and I just, I don't think the culture is interested in a guy like Hal Jordan. Hal Jordan is a space cop. That's all he's really got going. Nobody likes cops. Huh? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Nobody exactly. likes cops. And he's got a problematic history. You don't spend 10 years telling me that this guy is an irredeemable evil and then do a 180. It's like, I can't accept that. I will always see the blood on that man's hands. Uh, I mean, if he's an animation, I still got the back of my mind. He, he got flipped out when Coast City got destroyed. Right. Cyborg Superman was involved, and I know for a fact he's a scumbag. Yeah. Know, Every but, single Green Lantern you have, in terms of getting them over with the public on a TV show, on a movie, whatever, every single one of them is better than Hal Jordan. Guy's more interesting, Alan Scott's more interesting, Kyle Rayner's more interesting, but Jon Stewart is the one that spent all those years in the Justice League show, and you need a black dude out there, you know? You can't just well, you not... Need, you need you know, one now out there more than ever. Especially at DC. DC is the whitest, blandest company. And that's it, kind of what kind of kept me from reading their comics, I think. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's what it was. I'm always like, whenever I dig, when I was buying 
DC. I was just trying to give me something different. If I seen it in a cartoon, this might make me like it. Because yeah. I'm thinking if I didn't see it in animation, it might be a harder sell. I was a comic retailer for eight years. Those are the years when you had Connor Hawk as Green Arrow. That I remember Connor Hawk. Those were the years when DC was at least trying. They made Kyle Rayner like part Mexican, you know, which is pretty sad attempt. Uh, but. I, find it, I find it interesting though, but he didn't look it. No, of I'm, course not. The guy named days, Kyle. Look I, I've never met a Mexican named Kyle. Come on, you know <laughs> Kyle Rayner. Well, I, I mean, I, I mean, if there are any out there, hello. <laughs> right. I've had this conversation for years because I, for years I was in the '90s. I was a DC fan, and as a retailer, I had to sell what people wanted to buy. But I also made a special effort to try to push DC because I enjoyed the material they were doing. But one of the things that was always a constant pushback is that DC didn't have good diversity to watch I mean, them. Women characters in black. And black people. <laughs> exactly. They made they made some progress with women characters. I do think that DC has some pretty solid female characters to sell to the public. That's why they've gotten into female movies earlier than Marvel and have more of them than Marvel and probably will continue to do so. But when it comes to racial aspects, they just suck. And they're constantly walking it back. Every time they try to do they they take one step forward, two steps back, and they don't understand that they're perpetuating their constant number two status because when you have a segment of the readership or at this point the viewership that don't see themselves reflected in the universe or worse yet do see themselves reflected like somebody like a John Henry Irons when was the last time we saw that dude anywhere which honestly though for me I mean I know I got him on I know I got Superman animated series and the few issues of Superman Man of Steel in my collection and him and Grant Morrison's Justice League but I haven't seen him anywhere recently yeah and, the, and you can say the same thing about Vixen you can say the same thing about pretty much any character of color at DC I mean we, we, we were talking about Nubia right she's nowhere to be found exactly and, you know, well, she's tied to Wonder Woman and you could use that you, you've got that initiative there's some stuff happening now but unless it catches fire, they're going to forget about it and forget about her. Also, there's like a new Black Green Lantern out right now, too, in a book called Farside. I've heard good things about that one. Yeah. Or I Far, far Sector, I think it is. Yeah. It's like a DC young animal book. Mm -hmm. I want to get the trade to that one because mm -hmm. it's different. And it's a black woman as Green Lantern, which right. you don't see that at all. I mean, you got Jessica Cruz, but she's Hispanic. Mm -hmm. You got Simon Baz. He's another one which I want to like, but I don't know. Jessica Cruz, since she was on um, Justice League versus the Fatal Five, I got more endeared to the at least her animated version. Mm -hmm. I haven't read her comic version yet, even though I know that a certain idiot on YouTube I will not talk about. I did have something to do with her creation, but I don't know. I've never read anything. Oh, I, never I, even... I think I know who you're talking about now. <laughs> yeah, Voldemort. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but um. Anyways, I'm trying to not think about that, but I don't want yeah. that to take the character for me because she's voiced by the woman who played Crazy Jane in Doom Patrol on that cartoon. Okay. Which uh, that's the thing with all of this. Like when I see it, when I see DC's animated stuff, I fall in love with it. And you know, if it's really, really good, those are the versions I think of most in their comic book versions. And I go to read their comic book versions, I'm always very conflicted. But like we were saying about their black characters, you know, it's always like Vixen could have had more push if they really would have wanted to. Like they could have put her in Super Friends a long time ago. Anybody but Cyborg I mean they could have done I don't know there's some black characters from the 70s that I, I'm not even I, to this day I won't talk about well I mean Cyborg's <laughs> one of the only guys they've been consistent on they've kept they've kept keeping him in the spotlight you know that he's going to be in the Snyder director's cut once that gets taken care of and obviously there's a hey, lot I'm more I'm not even going to watch it huh? <laughs> I'm not even going to watch that. <laughs> but you know, there's going to be a lot of cyborg in that. So it, that's that's visibility. You know, that's that's representation. I mean, good for cyborg. Yeah, yeah, true, true. But I mean, that's there isn't a white version for them to replace cyborg with. So at least they're not going to just up and stop doing anything with cyborg because there isn't competition for the role of cyborg. So he's got that going for him. I mean, there's, there's, there's the dreaded cyborg, but he he blew up Co City. <laughs> oh, oh, sure, Superman. <laughs> yeah. 
I don't know when I read that character, I'm thinking Tim Daly is like evil and electronic voice. <laughs> right. Yeah, I still haven't, I mean, I, I still haven't watched that the that new ones. I, I, I've heard that they're okay, but I haven't actually watched the new versions of the uh, Death of Superman. I can't stop being mad at the fact that we've had two Wonder Woman cartoons ever in the original DC movies, and we're already on the second animation ver- animated version of the Death of Superman. And it's a two-movie series. Which, it's like, you which, which I, I like Death of Superman too, but it's like I, I mean, I was listening to Michael Bailey talk about it, and I'm like, I, I get why Michael Bailey would be very passionate about it because he was there. Me, I think as a kid, I, I, barely, I think I knew about it. I think I had like one or two issues, like one with the Eradicator, one with Steel, and one with Supergirl. When Superman was dead, so it's what I had, you know, at the time. So I'm like, I know these other strange people look like Superman. So I'll go with that. First, <laughs> like when the cartoons on and the show Lois and Clark was on, and you know, I guess that's what it was with all this DC stuff. I see there are other media versions, and I look at the comic book version, and go, yeah, okay, I can see why I like this, I like this, and that kind of rubs me the wrong way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's like it's, Tim Bruce Tim and Paul Dini they they, they could have I wish they would have kept on going with Justice League out of my problem though I feel like but then well who else could have a cartoon for all guest players in this one cartoon mm-hmm. and they might get one or two episodes but nothing else and I know Dwayne McDuffie did so much on that show but it's probably another reason why I like a lot of those characters even the ones that were very obscure but I know what DC with their black characters like I was saying it's like I got very few I can name and even though Black Lightning was this weird little like nebulous thing where it's like I like his oldest daughter more than I like him mm-hmm. even only at him and go he's good but you know yeah well and if you try to do the same thing at marvel it's okay which team do you want me to start with one you know <laughs> it's like it's like I, it's like i like storm on the x-men but i like all the x-men mm-hmm. you know so i it's like but then I, it's hard for me to pick favorites wolverine being the resident bad boy gambit being the you know the flirtatious thief and rogue i mean i got action figures of more x-men than i do dc stuff mm-hmm. which says a lot about me and very very few batman things here and there and brightest day in blackest night. Hi, everybody. I'm Chad Wolfman. I'm Mark Marble. And this is the Lantern Cast, episode 516. And Mark and I are covering issues 19 and 20 of the 2007 ish series, The Brave and the Bold. Coverage of Phantom Stranger goings on on this podcast. This is a really good series. Personally, I think it gets better towards its conclusion when Straczynski takes over and starts writing it. We get our big Batman books and our Superman books and some of the other lesser known characters get left behind. This was a really cool opportunity to see the various characters across the DC universe teamed up together. Eventually you would start getting Power Girl and the Doom Patrol. The Blackhawks would make an appearance. I have fond memories of this incarnation of the series and this arc in particular. It is an interesting arc. Once upon a time we have Green Lantern and the Phantom Stranger number 19 entitled In One Voice to Save a Planet. We have David Hine, Doug Braithwaite, and Bill Reinhold to thank for this first issue. And if people want to stay in touch with us as we start through all of that coverage, how do they reach out to us? Lanterncast.com. The email is lanterncast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook, hashtag Geocast. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Our YouTube channel is Lanterncast Vids. Last but not least, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail or a text, 708 Lantern, and let us know what you think. You have accessed the podcast of OA. 
located deep within Sector 14845 and powered by the Emerald Light of Will. The podcast of Oa is your guide to the Green Lantern universe. Hosted by Lantern Myron Rumsey, the podcast of Oa begins now. Hey, Green Lantern fans. Welcome to the podcast of OA, episode number 224. As always, I'm joined by my good friend, Phil Bova. What we're going to talk about is issues 21 and 22, which is the third and fourth part of a story that's a team up with Hal and Phantom Stranger and Green Arrow. It's not really, but we'll get to that. Which, by the way, is cooler because Phantom Stranger is awesome. Yeah, I love Phantom Strangers. He's one of those great, the macabre and the mystical and all that stuff. Yeah. I, lo- I love that. And Phantom Stranger really fits the bill. And it's an unusual team up for Hal to have. So the first two issues, issues 19 and 20, were covered by our good friends, Chad and Mark, over the Lantern cast. It may be of value to folks to listen to their episode because they're covering the first half of the story. We have the honor and pleasure of doing the second half of the story. Close, girl. I didn't want him to get hurt. Forget him, Nightingale. It's us you should be worrying about. Let her go, Fade. I tripped the alarm, so static with my fault. What, you want to fight me? Yo, Brick. Thanks. Whatever. Just don't push your luck. Brickhouse is taken to get her hair fixed by Flashback's drag beautician. Fade contracts his uncle to fix the base. Aquamaria continues the visit. A cruel, racist high school principal expels a student, Bubba Brown, who turns into a homicidal purple dinosaur in defense of his education. Bubbasaur stalks Mr. Q through the school. Police can't be reached, but the well-armed and skittish Dakota Fire Department still show up. While commiserating with DMZ, Fade spots the fire trucks and follows. He stabs the dino in the head to save his dad, the principal, but is still disowned. Garden Station System Indigo picks up Bubasaurus, who still has life left in him, for the new mother. The Blood Syndicate enjoys a trash can fire dinner, and the increasingly necessarily chill wise son finally talks Aquamaria into the fold. Still can't believe what a 180 this book did from Gangsta Try Hard to the love and rockets of superhero books. Criss Cross's art is brilliant. Infestation is the only branded multi-part story Blood Syndicate has, even though they've already had arcs, and certainly better ones. The first part is all Criss Cross, and I swear he deserves a better career. He gives every single rat their own distinct features. He's amazing. With the arrival of Aquamaria comes a lot more partially untranslated Spanish. This is the most heavily Latin-centric milestone book, and it works. Anyway, her family is dead or disinterested, and she's formerly of the severe Society of the Cross, so foreshadowing. A war is brewing between sewer rats and invasive cockroaches. White boy Boogeyman wants to avoid engaging in hostilities, but the roaches cross into his human world as well, kidnapping and assaulting people. His mom is a nurse who encounters the bug problem. Flashback, fade, DMZ, and dog go clubbing. And as we transition into the next issue, we learn Holocaust is the owner of the club. He also has an ongoing thing with Flashback, enticing her to join him in living large with sex, money, and crack rock. It's the most interesting Holocaust spin so far. Dog is very rude with wait staff and demands pina coladas. DMZ is downcast and puts a lot of drinks away, but does get some dancing in. Fade freaks when he catches a male gaze. Masquerade is back at home, stewing and contemplating jumping ship to the shadow cabinet. Third rail's brick. That was a sex pun. Did you get it? Ron Wilson helps with the second chapter, and it's a better fit than on the other milestone books, but still a letdown sharing space with Criss Cross. Kwai visits her parents, with father awed and mother in aggressive denial. A giant albino roach a sales boogeyman in his mom's apartment. Young J.H. Williams finishes the arc with a lot more Kelly Jones influence than in his more familiar work. 
Boogeyman enlists a reluctant blood syndicate to go with him into the sewers. Many outright refuse. In the end, the albino roaches are killed and the menace ended, but there's no explanation given for any of it. In all his decades of publishing history, one event has affected Superman more than any other. Worlds lived, worlds died, and that was only the beginning. Superman was never the same. Presenting Superman in Crisis. A special crossover episode. Their ship name is Supercats. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Superman in Crisis, a podcast produced by John Wilson. That's me. And normally we are chronicling through all of the uh, issues of Crisis on Infinite Earth and all of the Superman adventures that were published alongside them. However, this is a special episode. We're going to just set that mission aside because we are taking part in an annual podcast crossover known as J.L. May. Yes, yes, the the spectacular, highly taunting. Uh, flouted, like, super prestigious podcast crossover has finally accepted my 12 years of podcasting. All right, guys? I mean, I've been doing this for a really long time. (laughs) Why did you take so long to let me in? (laughs) But here I am. And with me, I have invited along a guest, a friend that I have made through the uh, Dungeons and Dragons and Dragonlands podcast over at Married with Comics. She herself is a podcaster in her own right, which I'll let her talk about in a minute. But Lane, thank you very much for coming on the show. How are you? Hi, John. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. This is the first podcast I've been on where I talked together with someone about a comic book, because normally I talk about Batman books, like prose books. Mm -hmm. So... This is my inaugural episode of talking together with someone about a comic book. So I'm very excited. Well, good. I'm glad that you're here then. We can talk about Superman because he's pretty great. And Catwoman. She's pretty awesome, too. Yeah. Hardware's arsenal. Voice synthesizer. Kurt Metcalf uses a synthesizer to alter his speaking voice to hardware's cold, intimidating tone. The device can also be used to allow hardware to project a number of different voices, male and female, linked to OB's language modules. It can translate English vocal input into a number of foreign languages. This ability is limited by OB's vocabulary and the ability to understand foreign vocal input. Worlds Collide as Superman, the Man of Steel number 35 by Louise Simonson and John Bogdanoff features Frederick Benson, a nevish mailman who falls asleep in Metropolis and awakens in Dakota, then falls asleep in Dakota and wakes up in Metropolis in an endless cycle. While being tested by dream specialists on DC Earth, he encounters Static, while naked, and a menace stalks. Worlds Collide! Into Hardware number 17, when Alva discovers Frederick Benson and has his new lackey follow him to Metropolis. Curtis struggles with reality and his compromise, which is just as cool as the cover teased us with steel that never actually happened. Lex Luthor wrecked things so badly on his way to indictment that the fall of Metropolis arc made the DC town look even worse than Dakota. That arc might be why only one Superman Triangle series participates, or maybe Milestone's hard PG-13 soft R tendencies gave Carl in the vapors. For instance, we have a scene with an attempted rape in Metropolis that ends with actual zipping of pants. It's a little much. Next, Worlds Collide trades Red Skies for Insomniac Nerds as Superboy number 6 by 
by Carl Kiesel and Tom Grummet involves Frederick Benson running away from Parasite, getting rescued by the Metropolis Kid, and both getting zapped to Dakota to face a ticked off looking rocket. This requires 17 chapters. Worlds collide! Into Icon number 15 by Dwayne McDuffie and Mark Bright. We're four chapters in. We finally have significant interactions between DC and Dakota heroes. Superboy is a sex pest toward Rocket for most of the issue before she offers him the role of her stepbaby daddy. He was such a little sleaze. Like the low rent Luthor that he is, Alva salivates over a second world to exploit, made even more likely when the destroyed bridges of each world suddenly connect, prompting DMZ to say, damn. Also, Rocket became sort of a muskrat over Edwin because the 90s sucked too. Worlds collide! Into Steel number six by Luis Simonson and Chris Batista, as Metropolis's Manuel Cabral in his first appearance, and Dakota's Edwin Alva used their sleep clinics and technology in a bid to control Fred Benson, who I guess must keep teleporting away as he just wanders around meeting folk. Colonel Thomas Weston, CEO of Ameritech Industries, created the circumstances that led to John Henry Irons becoming Steel. This was set up during John Henry Irons' Superman the Man of Steel run, but abandoned six issues into his solo series as he's turned over to cops like a common crook. He's since been forgotten. Was he in the movie? At least the military industrial complex was an angle with real world relevance. In a seeming arms race between similar titles, Hardware upgrades his armor and still got his own Lex Luthor with ties to a broader clandestine organization. Can we all stay in our lanes? With 17 chapters to fill, there's plenty of time to wrap the Washington DC premise and move back to Metropolis to fight new arch enemy Hazard, power armored leader of Black Ops. Hardware versus Steel barely moves past pushes and glares, so why not soft reboot the title as well? Ivan Velez Jr. and Crisscross take us into Blood Syndicate number 16, as the gang understandably assumed Dakota has been bombed when all of fallen Metropolis manifests in their reality. Another worldly barrier seals off Paris Island, except for the newly restored 10th Avenue Bridge. The Syndicate help rescue survivors and find water, but are met with noted distrust and ingratitude, even from Lois Lane, because meta-humans are being blamed for the destruction caused by LexCorp bombs, robots, etc. They also end up laying hands on Superman. When in Rome, Worlds Collide, issue number one of one, with color forms that let your kids create battles over an urban hellscape. Real missed opportunity to not have even one of Milestone's distinctive curse word balloons. Only the 90s would allow Boogeyman and Dogaga to have their own static clings haunting quarter bins. The original static creative team reunite for a final 17-page story where Virgil Hawkins' crew meet Superboy, while Fred Benson cracks under pressure and becomes proto-Superboy Prime. After that, schizophrenic art from all hands between Milestone and Superman family contribute pages. And by all hands, I mean absolutely no one from the core Superman titles beyond the Man of Steel team dirtied theirs. But in their defense, Jurgen was doing double duty on JLA, Jackson Geis had just done an oversized anniversary, and Kitson? Plus we didn't need six more chapters. The writing is all Milestone, with Washington on the static opener, Valez on the Blood Syndicate closer, and McDuffie on everything else, including pages devoted to Hazard's second ever appearance as the secondary antagonist on a crossover there was less worlds collide as sister cities can join. The rest of the special is Superman fighting the Blood Syndicate, who don't believe he's the fictional Man of Steel from their universe. Also, Nerdy Fred decides he dreamed up both universes, becomes a god dubbed Rift, and drops Paris Island like a pebble that causes a tsunami. World! 
worlds collide into Superboy number seven. And it's profoundly weird to see the grim and sweary milestone characters rendered in the Pollyanna style of Tom Grummet. Might not be the most natural crossover, but the severe contrast is at least interesting. It's mostly up to Superman, Aquamaria, and Rift himself to halt the tidal wave. Rift thinks he's Dr. Manhattan, sparking joy by planning to reduce the two universes he thinks he created into one. When Superboy, Static, and Rocket trip him up, Rift appears to kill the trio. He leaves a giant tombstone in their honor. They're in fact encased within. Worlds collide! And dude, hardware number 18. As Metcalf and Alva survive the Parasilent Dunk, but few others in their sphere do. Using new deep sea armor, hardware springs transit from an underwater prison to create a dimensional conduit to Hazard, joining forces against Rift. I guess trying to make Hazard happen was part of DC's deal. Anyway, Steel is recruited and a device is created to counter Rift. Hardware goads Steel into giving him a breather to install a lethal failsafe. But John Henry is on that Boy Scout tip, catching him in the act. Hardware gets in some great jab, literal and verbal, with big, you biting my flow energy. The Captain America, I can do this all day aspect of John Henry is on display. And even when nanites eat his armor, he still seems to win hardware over. Seems. Worlds collide! Into Superman, the Man of Steel number 36, where Bogdanov feels much more natural handling milestone properties. Maybe the only artist who could strike the balance between Golden Age classicism and urbane expressionism. That's needed when the story is Superman swimming past dead babies in the ruins of Paris Island bleak. Rift makes Icon fight the Man of Steel and imperils Lois at one point for incentive. Too much misery porn to be any fun, and the chapter ends with a move back to Dakota. Dwayne McDuffie and Mark Bride are back for Icon number 16 as he and Superman recap their origins and have another inconclusive fight. I made the mistake of reading the 1988 miniseries Totally Clips at the same time as this, and that's a candidate for worst crossover ever. The Worlds Collide's being better isn't being good. Worlds Collide! Into Steel number 7. As Rift decides to consolidate Dakota and Metropolis into one world, Burrow, and the body count gets too high to avoid an obvious reset. Rift gets punked again, while Icon and Superman are the only guys strong enough to literally lift the deus ex machina. Worlds collide! And we'll spin into Blood Syndicate number 17. Trapped by Rift, things get meta when reality warps as he tries to revamp the troubled youngsters into more appropriate comics fare with abounding coded racism. Then we move on to Static number 14 as the teen heroes become a legion of superheroes analogs and the big guns are trapped in a pocket dimension. Transit helps them escape with the deus ex machina Static powers it, and everything resets. Fred is put into an indefinite sleep. This episode, Once Upon the Brave and the Bold. Hello, and welcome to the Once Upon a Geek podcast. On today's episode, we are finding our joy by discussing a fantastic issue of the Brave and the Bold comic book from 2010. Specifically, an issue that teams up Green Lantern Hal Jordan with the original Dr. Fate Kent Nelson. Now, my name is the Irredeemable Shag, and I'm your host, but I am not doing this alone. For this episode, I have brought along an old buddy of mine. Folks, please help me welcome to the show, Mr. Kichi Baker. How you doing, buddy? Yay! Hey. <laughs> I'm still going to play the sound effect. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's get into this. So, the writer is J. Michael Straczynski, artist is Jesus Sayas, letter is Rob Lee, colorist is Brian Miller, and the editor is Joey Cavallari, and this issue itself is entitled, The Green and the Gold. Remember, life is short. Focus on the positive. Find your joy. The Zombies series began in earnest on April 19th, 1994, about five months after the lousy number zero, with a number one that takes place two months prior to the zero issue. 
but what? I can't. J.J. Birch unfortunately takes over the art from Cowan with a John Byrne cover. He actually did all the titles that particular month. Organitech new hire Kelly Sanborn has sexual tension with her proctor and former teacher's assistant David Kim, who's working on his doctorate and with a long-distance fiance. Nanotechnology allows him to create almost anything out of raw organic material within the meat machine. Disturbing creatures of dark magic are dispatched by the escaped Dr. Sugarman to Organitech. They kill anyone in their path on a retrieval mission. Kelly finds a near-death Kim, follows his orders to hook him to the machine, and is herself cannibalized to provide the material needed to heal him. Just as Kim recovers from the horror of his resurrection, police burst in, not taking prisoners. Thanks to his enhancements, Kim survives multiple gunshots and a four-story dead drop to escape. Aided by Rabbi Sinowitz and his golems to safety, Kim is given a new purpose. Catholic Girl, None of the Above, and Julian Parker warn Kim about Dr. Sugarman, whose pursuit of immortality and other paths toward human perfection have left mutilated children in his way. Worse, Baraxas Megatheros is also escaping. Existence is in peril. From the Garden of Spires comes a knight from the Order of the Spoken Flame named Liam, charged since 1210 AD with guarding the recently escaped Lord of Fumes. He comes to our plane via a literal life-sized meat puppet, soon destroyed by New York City heat and lesion dogs. None of the above, and you in by the way, can target most living beings within a 30-mile radius to monitor, and having located Meet Liam, sent Catholic Girl to fly over to blasted dogs with energy from her crucifix. One of the dogs' victims proves a more durable host for Liam, who explains his mission. Julian Parker divines Sugarman's location from the finger joint of a rustling husk, but he and David Kim are attacked at the Dakota Public Library by the Sheer Shears, who cannot be defeated by any knowledge gleaned from a book. Scissors beat paper, but rock beats scissors. Or rather, a bust on a mantle is used to smash the Sheer Shears. The four stable boys of the apocalypse, Symptom, Dispute, Entropy, and the Barrenness, herald false end times and attempt to push them into full realization. They give David Kim bubonic plague, syphilis, meningitis, and AIDS, but he just gets better. Meeting at a new church built upon a garbage scow, David and Julian are mocked for taking so long, like the rest of the team didn't overcome its own obstacles. Next up are carnivore clouds, but Catholic Girl saves herself through a force field generated by reciting from the Book of Luke. Dr. Sugarman halts their approach, wishing a demonstration of Kim's nanite regeneration before injecting himself with them. However, the nanites, the rustling husks, stole were never programmed, and so will pass harmlessly and ineffectually through his urine. Dr. Sugarman then escapes the plot another day. In the Garden of Spires, Liam's horse is dragged into the earth by zombie hands. Later, his little mechanical friends face a horde of the undead. Did Boraxus Megatheros, the Lord of Fumes, ever really depart this plane? Lord of Fumes is a giant smog monster with rapid healing, who is nonetheless swiftly dropped into an experimental pollution-busting chemical and contained again. Liam returns to the Garden only to discover he's been killed there too. The Silent Cathedral's arc defines anticlimactic. Silent Cathedrals was offered an epilogue in Zombie Number 6. David Kim had decided that he would use nanites to resurrect Kelly Sanborn. Most of the story was David remembering every significant and trivial thing about Kelly that he could recall. Whilst doing so, we see him progress toward his goal. Visiting the Organitech Corp crime scene and convincing his supervisor to allow him to cross the police line to grieve, also to collect a sample of Kelly's blood from a splatter on the wall, process it with his equipment, and successfully program nanites to rebuild his protege. Everything was set until he reaches the funeral home 
to convince the mortician to allow him a moment alone with Kelly Sanborn's remains. You see, there wasn't much remaining of Kelly within the remains, so they were promptly cremated, and nanites can't work with mere ashes. The entire time, David had been thinking of old discussion topics, bad ex-boyfriends, never knowing Kelly's favorite color. One thing she had wanted to do in life was to paradigm. Since Kelly's body had provided the raw material to resurrect David, he hoped that some part of her was still inside of him and trained for his own jump. He didn't see the point in pursuing revenge against Dr. Sugarman and had no intentions toward continued adventuring with his zombie abilities. He just wanted to do right by the memory of one of his closest friends. Having come up short in collecting a three-issue run of fill-in issues for the now-required trade paperback, 2010's The Brave and the Bold, Milestone, filled half its pages with done-in-one Milestone comics reprints, including the Buziak Vokes reformed gangbanger story from Static Number 12, McDuffie and Cowan's Hardware Number 16, with that hero's Edwin Alva-sponsored armor upgrade ahead of Worlds Collide, and this affecting Tale of Mourning, which concluded the volume. However, I've chosen to stick with chronological order, so we'll wrap up with The Brave and the Bold number 26, releasing between the end of the first 21-issue run of Zombie in 1996 and the six-issue second volume released in 2011, before being truncated into a de facto miniseries by the launch of DC's New 52 initiative. Both of those runs were written by John Rosam, the only milestone creator to also write a signature character in the Brave and the Bold one-offs. Volume 1 artist Joe Brzezowski, also known as J.J. Birch, was referenced briefly in the story, this time drawn by Scott Hampton, with a cover by Michael William Kaluta. The team-up was with the Christmas Allen incarnation of the Spectre, and given the focus on heroes of color in this podcast series, you're probably expecting a whole breakdown on that character. Nope, pass on that. He became the new Spectre in 2006 after a series of higher-profile white dudes served in the role. He was given a couple of miniseries in his many years, totaling 11 comics, none actually called The Spectre, and most under the anthology banner Tales of the Unexpected. The Christmas Allen Spectre only made a handful of appearances after that, before being erased by the new 52, and the role going back to the old white guy who was supposed to be fully committed to the great beyond by that point. Incidentally, Jeff John's involvement in that was tangential at best. As for the actual story of this teaming of ill-fated undead heroes, the Annihilating Angel botches the punishment of a serial killer, allowing his spirit to continue to torture and eradicate innocent ghosts and supernatural beings like vampires. Aside from the incompetence and the corny placement of a goatee, there wasn't much reason why this had to be a Christmas Allen story instead of a Jim Corrigan one. Some unseen powers that be insist that the Spectre has no dominion over the undead and so cannot act against the serial killer to punish him a second time. Julian Parker is called in to help by the spirits and himself calls up Zombie and the Spectre to help. David Kim's role is mostly to not die when attacked by the serial killer, which keeps him occupied until the Spectre can finally be convinced to show up and fully destroy the homicidal boogeyman. Consequences be damned. It's never explained why this one particular serial killer got so powerful, and the story hinges on the Spectre's willingness to bend the rules to do what he thinks is right, just as he had in life as a police officer. That's not just my pinko lefty hot take, but explicitly stated in the script, which hits a lot different in 2023 than it did in 2009. I'm not so sure the actual police are themselves hitting people any differently these days, but the reactions of the populace are less prejudiced toward the police's perspective. Actually, a lot of people are still like way, way into it, but whatever. This dude killed women and animals. We can all get behind ending him definitively. Probably we can say the same about this podcast series and JL May 2023 overall. DC Bloodlines was nipping at Michael Bailey's heels to be the first podcast out in this particular event, and he's nipping at mine over who can deliver their show the latest and still technically come out in the month of May according to their specific time zone. I figure he's got the in on certain as the Spectre, co-created by Jerry Siegel. So I guess I'll be your zombie. And here comes a new 52 that is midnight June 1st. We'll just let the timestamps tell the rest of the tale. Hello and welcome 
to a very special edition of the Weird Warriors podcast. I am Max. I am Rich. And on this episode, Brave and the Bold, number 28, we're going to jump into the story at hand. It is called Firing Line. Script is by J. Michael Straczynski, yes, of Babylon 5 fame, and art by Jesus Saiz. Going to give you a little teaser in case you feel like sticking around after all this for what's coming up next on our regularly scheduled podcast. Weird War Tales, number 40. 40. Max, you wouldn't have made it to issue three without me and you know it. No lies detected. <laughs> Ghosts, aliens, secret identities. If only it was all in the same story. Now that would be weird. It would, wouldn't it? And that's why we're here. So until next time, this has been the Weird Warriors podcast. This has been JL May 2023. I have been Max. He's been Rich. We're the Batman Bros. We are the Weird Warriors and we promise to make war. No more. If you enjoyed the music featured in this podcast, be sure to legally download The Syndicate by Ice-T, Soldiers at War by Tech 9 Icon by Jaden Smith, Levitating by Dua Lipa, Rocket by The Smashing Pumpkins, Emotionless by Drake, Syndicate by Omen 13, Brain Cells by Chance the Rapper, Men of Steel by Shaquille O'Neal and Friends, Don't Sweat the Technique by Eric B. and Rakeem, Zombie by The Cranberries, Brick House by The Commodores, Technique by Vald, Informer by Snow, and Gone Away by The Offspring. We received social media attention from Adam Einberry, Dr. Ange, The Bat Pod, Between the Pages, Billy Hines, Capital Gain Income, Chris and Bad Books for Beginners, Chris Lydon, Coffee and Comics Podcast, The Daily Rios, Dave's Comic Heroes Blog, Del Dracula, Doc Strange, Ed Moore, Fog Weaver, History of Comics on Film, Hicks But Look for Flanger in the Refugee Camps, The Irredeemable Shag, Julio Raul Super Turbo, Justin Steiner, Keith G. Baker, Kiddos 2, Laurel, Lizanne Oswalt, Max Romero, Michael Kirkland, the Lantern Cast, Outcasters, a Batman and the Outsiders podcast, Pavel L, Resurrections and Adam Warlock and Thanos podcast, Roger Preeb, Sean Merrick, Siskoid, Talk Nerdy to Me, Tim Price the Prod Crasher, Tradekin, Willie Yarbrough, and the Right On Network. This is Head Speaks, a proud member of the Headcast Network family of shows. As usual, I am your host, Aaron Moss, a.k.a. Brother Head. And this is my, well, mostly monthly Headcast, where I talk about comics, movies, role-playing games, TV shows, and anything else geeky that I want. Sometimes I'm alone. Sometimes I manage to con a guest onto the show. So if you like comic books like Firestorm and The Atom, or movies like Back to the Future, or even the Star Wars sequels, uh, or anything else geeky, this, this is the place for you. So let's get the flux capacitor fluxing, the TARDIS tarting, and let's say Shazam! So let's take a look at Brave and the Bold, issue 31. The cover date was March of 2010. The title was called Small Problems, featuring the Joker and the Atom. Writer was J. Michael Straczynski. Penciler was both Chad Harden and Jose Hustinanzo. I'm probably butchering those names. I'm sorry. Inkers on this was Wayne Faucher and Walden Wong. The cover credit was done by Jesus Sayas, And this was reprinted in the team-ups of the Brave and the Bold hardcover and team-ups of the Brave and the Bold trade paperback. On with this episode of Head Speaks. that which is wrong and to serve all mankind. 
Automa, Argus, Automa, Ballistic, Cardinal Sin, Channel Man, Chimera, Edge, Freight Train, Geist, Gunfire, Akrat, Harry Force, Hitman, Hook, Jam, Joe Public, Loria, Crack, Layla, Lionheart, Loose Cannon, Megabiter, Mongolite, Miriam, Nightblade, Output, Pouse, Prism, Razor Shark, Rodney Jane, Samaritan, Shadow Strike, Slick Shot, Smart Shot, Terrorist Wow, that's a lot of radical trademark names. And you may not have heard of any of them, but they were all introduced in DC Comics' 1993 Summer Annuals. Most went on to figure into more stories within their four-color universe. Many earned their own spotlight series, and one became a cult hit from acclaimed creators. While the comics of the 1990s are often derided, for me, as a longtime comic book reader, I found a deepened fandom and a safe harbor from the Chromium Age in the DCU. I fell in love with the history and legacy found in generations of heroic mantles, and my journey into this continuity largely began with Bloodlines. Join me, Diablo Frank, as I explore the more overlooked areas of DC Comics' superheroes, beginning with an early 90s intellectual property generating stunt and fanning outward towards other obscurities and icons from throughout decades of sequential art stories all flowing through the DC bloodlines. Podcasts available on iTunes, Shout Engine, and the Internet Archive. The preceding DC Comics-related program is a non-profit fan production. Any copyrighted materials therein are believed covered under fair use, and no copyright infringement is intended. Please leave your comments on the DC Bloodlines blog, the Rollsbind Podcast's WordPress page, via email at emailofdiabalu at yahoo.com, or you can tweet the host directly on the Twitters at Commander Blanks, spelled with an X. You can also talk to the whole Rolled Spine gang on the Twitters at Rolled Spine. We hope you enjoyed our little program, and remember, spill the blood! Doom Patrol, Negative Man, Elastigirl, Robot Man. Someone wants the Doom Patrol reunited. Your every word and action is being broadcast across the planet. Now, Monsieur Mana! Well done, my Doom Patrol. Well done. It is too late for you, Caldell. Your beloved patrol is doomed. Hello and welcome to Waiting for Doom, the world's greatest and longest running Doom Patrol related podcast where we talk long and lovingly every episode about our favourite superhero team, the mighty Doom Patrol. Hi everyone, I'm Paul, you can find me on Twitter at reading underscore Hicks, sort of for now, I don't know. Um, and you can also find our Senior Show Twitter account at um, WFD Pod. Hello Wilfred, are you still alive? Hello If you don't know what JLMA is, why are you listening to the last part of JLMA without knowing what it is? Really? Come on. The form of this, it is manifested as I was talking about the Brave and the Bold series from 2007. We're talking about it, and this is the last part, so we're talking about issues 34 and 35, the final issues of that Brave and the Bold run, the final part of JL May. And we thought to celebrate, we'd have, we did a poll, we searched for the most average podcast we could find, and we found <laughs> Ryan Daly. Ryan Daly. Wow. This is- Am I supposed to be reading the Wilfred part? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> See what I mean. Hello, humans. Hello, hello, Paul. Hello, Mike. <laughs> Thank you for having me and all of my averageness back. J. Michael Straczynski, the man behind Babylon 5 and ruining Superman, he came on. And so he took over the comic. And despite the reputation that J. Michael Straczynski has for ruining comics, I thought his run was pretty good. So, Mike will be taking us through Brave and the Bold number 34. Artist was Jesus Sayers. The second issue, 35, which Ryan is going to take us through kindly. You can find us at waitingfordoom.com. They can reach us at waitingfordoom at gmail.com. They can check out the Waiting for Doom Facebook page, which apparently...
apparently has 1.3 thousand followers now. I'm not one of them. <laughs> I, yeah, I know you, you, you're not on that. Uh, you can also find all our episodes on iTunes, uh, Stitcher Radio, and on podme.com. And you can also check us out on Buy Me A Coffee. Stay weird, be good to each other, don't be a crumb bump, and we'll catch you again next time for more Waiting For Doom. Waiting For Doom. Stay tuned.